0: I am super excited for this conversation today. We are going to be talking to the incredible Dr. Marissa G. Franco. Don't get her confused with the other Dr. Marissa Franco. This is the OG that we have here. And we're going to be talking about an area that I think does not get enough attention. So I'm super excited that she's bringing all of this attention to it. And where not surprisingly, your mindset impacts how you show up quite a bit. And that is friendship. So I would love, Dr. Franco, if you would tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about the exciting news that you just got right before we got on. This
1: yes. Call. Yeah. So I am a professor, a psychologist, a speaker and author of the book platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends, which as of yesterday has become
0: a New York times bestseller. Woo-hoo! I Yay! wish we had like sound effects, like a shock jock. So I could like <laughs> do a drum roll or like confetti coming out. So exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. How long has the book been out? For a little over
1: a week now.
0: Wow. Nice yep, work. First week. First week in. She's cracked the mysterious code. Nobody knows uh-huh. exactly how to make something a bestseller. <laughs> There's like <laughs> all these crazy theories.
1: So all right. Anything else you
0: want people to know about you before we kind of dive in? That is the most exciting part recently. Hmm. Well, I could get into why I decided to write the book. Yeah. So my first question was going to be, how did you come to this work? So let's just do that origin story bit. Let's
1: get in there. Yeah. I mean, I come writing this book from a place of repentance and regret for how I perceived friendship earlier in my life. I went through some breakups in my young 20s and felt kind of unlovable. And I decided to start this wellness group with my friends where we met up each week and we cooked and we did yoga and we meditated. And I felt so loved. And I thought about why I took these breakups so hard. And I realized it was these ideas that I had that romantic love was the only love that made me lovable. It's the only love that really counts, the only love that's legitimate. And here I had all this love around me, but I wasn't actually receiving it like it mattered at all. And it was like, wow, there's gold under my feet, but I just see it as concrete. And I feel like in such a lonely society, no one, whether within or outside a romantic partnership, can really afford to throw even a morsel of love away. (laughs) So I wanted to just be part of a culture of leveling this hierarchy a bit, I think, to all of our benefits. And that's what drove me to write Platonic.
0: I love that story because I think I have talked about this on the podcast before, but well, I'll say two things. So one is like anecdotally, one of the things I see in coaching a lot, this is not a 100% rule, but like 80% of the time, people with some, well, some people have not too much attachment drama at all. Everything's secure, fine. But for those of us with some attachment drama in one way or another, that often people will either sort of have, like their romantic life is really challenging, but friendship comes much more easily to them or like vice versa, which is, you know, I don't have a data or a study to back that up because I'm a coach and not a researcher. But if I look at like the thousands of women that I've coached, I feel that there's something there. And that was certainly my experience. So I also had a much easier time with friendships. Not that there was never any issue, but like I've had most of my friends for 30 to 40 years, like able to form secure attachments, didn't have a lot of drama about them. We didn't have lots of fights or anything. My romantic life much more felt much more volatile. And, you know, the biggest breakthrough I ever had in my romantic life actually was ironically this same experience where I had been like working on my in coaching work on my dating life and therapy and everything else for years and years. And on my 40th, somebody broke up with me like three weeks before my 40th birthday, which was actually we're good friends. Now it's fine. Now it was not the right, you know? And I was like, I kept constantly thinking that my problem was that I needed to be better at being alone. And so I like had that story about myself. And so I was like, okay, I guess this is like a sign that I should like spend my birthday weekend. And I don't know, like silent contemplation alone to like be even better at being alone. And my mother had made this tribute video that I didn't know she was doing. She'd like sent out this thing where people record videos of you. And she, so she sent it to me. I like went upstate and I like watched this whole video of like 20 people in my life telling me like how much they loved me and like what they loved about me. Mm -hmm. And it was like, so I like totally sobbed. And then I had like these friends who are upstate reach out to me and be like, it's your birthday. Let's go. And I had like Truly, I I mean, I'm often teaching there's no big insight moment, coaching work is bit by bit, but this was a like shocking moment where I was like, oh, there's all this love around me. I've been like so fixated on this one kind of love as if it's like a completely different kind, as opposed to my life is full of love. And like, if I add a little extra or take a little away, it's like that little bit is not going to make the big difference. And of course, right after, I had already actually met my current partner, but I'd only known him for a week or two and I would never have been open to that relationship, if I hadn't done this work, which is not to say that you should do work on friendship so you can find a romantic partner. That's part <laughs> of the whole problem. But just to say like the more we're fixated on it, the harder it is to find and the more we're ignoring all that love, I think in the rest of our lives. So I would love to hear, can you talk us a little bit about how, obviously on this podcast, we talk a lot about your mindset, how it impacts the results you get. And so I would love to hear, I know you have some data to <laughs> to back up whatever our theories about this. I would love to hear.
1: Oh gosh. So much, my goodness. (laughs) Is that too broad of a question? (laughs) No, I I I will break it down because your attachment style is a series of predictions, right? It's a series Mm -hmm. of mindsets, if A, then B, right? Wait,
0: can you say that again and like explain that more? I think that that was really deep and might have just gone through people's heads. Like, sure, what, what?
1: Yeah, so if you're anxiously attached, the prediction is if I get close to you, you'll abandon me. If you're avoidantly attached, the big prediction is if I get close to you, you will sort of betray me or harm me or suffocate me. And if you're securely attached, the assumption is if I get close to you, we'll experience great and wonderful intimacy. (laughs) And these predictions affect how we behave. So anxiously attached people, they're higher in something called rejection sensitivity, which means they assume they're being rejected when it's ambiguous. So when they make that assumption, when they make that prediction, someone's like maybe in hungry, hangry, (laughs) quieter than usual, what happens is because they assume that that means rejection, they start to reject, they become withdrawn, they become cold, they get rejected in return because they rejected Mm -hmm. first and they're not even realizing that's happening. And if they had a a secure mindset, which is like, oh, maybe they're just like tired or in a bad mood, they wouldn't reject and then they wouldn't receive the rejection in Mm -hmm. return. So it's kind of like a lot of our beliefs about relationships are such self-fulfilling prophecies. I know, Kara, I told you about research. You know, One of the biggest tips I share on making friends being to assume people like you. And the research on that finds that when researchers told people to make this assumption that they'd go into this group and based on their personality profiles, people would like them. It wasn't true, it was bogus. Researchers, they'd see people all the time But they found that when they told people this, people were open, friendlier, warmer, and it was sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So when you assume people like you, you make it more likely to be true because that mindset triggers a series of behaviors that make however you perceive the world, good or bad, more likely to happen.
0: So you are like singing our song. We talk about that all the time, right? That you don't, when you imagine someone who has like, a million friends, you don't imagine their thought process is, well, everybody hates me and nobody wants to be around me, right? That kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. I also would love if you could talk a little bit about, I know that there are actually sort of studies showing that, or at least a study showing that, like your beliefs about how friendship is supposed to come about, right? Impact your experience. One of the things we talk about, or I talk about a lot on the podcast, in any kind of relationship setting, romantic or friendship, is this idea that like, it's just supposed to happen magically to us, right? Mm -hmm. Or like all the different beliefs people have, like you make all your friends when you're young, or, you know, if people liked me, they would just show up at my house for dinner or like whatever unrealistic beliefs we have. So I would love to hear kind of from the data perspective, like what's been found.
1: Yeah. So this, you know, again, this assumption that friendship happens organically, which is kind of outdated if you're an adult, because when you're a kid, you have repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability in school, which Rebecca Adams, sociologist says, is is what fosters organic connection. You see people every day and you get vulnerable with them, but we don't have that as adults. I mean, some workplaces maybe, but most workplaces, no, people are not vulnerable, even though they see each other every day.
0: So now everybody's working at home so much. I mean, you're not even having that proximity a lot of the time.
1: Exactly. I think the assumption has to be in adulthood that friendship does not happen organically. Mm -hmm. It happens based off of initiative and effort. And in fact, a study looked at how these beliefs affect outcomes and it found that people that thought friendship happened based on luck were more lonely over time, whereas those that saw it as taking effort were less lonely over time.
0: Yeah. And I think that like stands to so much reason, right? It's like also if your belief is well, in relationships, people should just completely understand each other magically and never have to explain. Like over time, you probably end up feeling more lonely, more alienated, more misunderstood, right? All of that stuff. As opposed to if your belief is like, well, I have to communicate what I want. I have to be willing to be vulnerable. I have to be able to make those connections. And yeah. I think I coach a lot of women who feel like they have a lot of trouble, like making friendships as an adult. But I do think it's a combination of things. Obviously, there's like probably anxious attachment rejection stuff. So they're like afraid to do that in the first place but also just sort of not, I mean, ruthless is the wrong word in a sense, but I sort of mean like, you have to be like, I'm going to go ask five people if they want to hang out. And then the one who says, yes, if we like it, then I'll ask again. Like you have to actually make this concerted effort to develop and cultivate those friendships. I had this experience earlier this year where I threw a housewarming party and I moved and I invited like my core circle. And then, you know, I invited a bunch of acquaintances and a bunch of people said they were coming. And then at the end, just the core circle showed up and like literally every acquaintance bailed. And I had like maybe three hours of like feeling sorry for myself and rejected, you know, but thankfully I've done all this coaching work. And I, after that, I was my, I was just like, wait a minute. I have not put the time into developing and nurturing these relationships, right. To like create the kind of connection where people will show up when you invite them to something. Like I'm getting out exactly what I put in, which is like, mm-hmm. I sent you an evite and I haven't seen you for six months. Like, This is just math, right? If I want to have those relationships, then I need to put in the effort and not like take it personally. But I, so I think that was such a wake up call for me of like, you know, I think in my mind I had been like, well, you're close friends or you could take work, but then somehow you're supposed to like magically have this extended social network that doesn't like loose ties shouldn't take any work. But even that's Mm. not true. Like even loose ties need to be watered once every six months or whatever it's going to be.
1: Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Like I I sort of just see people say, you know, I want people to stick around enough to jump over my walls or I want people to reach out to me, but they don't turn these same questions on themselves. Am I reaching out to people? Am I making other people belong, right? And the truth is that, it's unhealthy if someone tries to push through your walls, right? It's healthy when you see that someone's not reciprocating to move on and find people
0: that will. That's such a good point. Hold on. We have to like, that is such a good point. Guys, when you are like, I'm not going to do anything and I want them to prove they want to be my friend by jumping over my walls constantly. You're basically like, I want a stalker. I want somebody with like no boundaries. <laughs> Who's emotionally inappropriate. Doesn't have a They're regard like, for themselves. Yeah. Who doesn't have any self-esteem and doesn't read any consensual signals to like prove to me. that they want to be my friend. That's so <laughs> fucked up. That's not what you want. No, no, you don't want those types I mean, of that's friends. what like classic dating advice for women about playing hard to get means. It's like. So you're just going to encourage basically men who don't care about your consent or taking any signals you go off to pursue so you. True. Like that is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Of course exactly. you want a guy who's like, I don't know. She never texts me first and she's acts like a cold fish. I don't think I want I don't think she exactly. wants to date me. Like that's a, <laughs> a healthy normal person. That's who you want. That's a secure person. Exactly. So good. I think one of the things we talk about in the podcast a lot is like other people are not your emotional vending machines. Mm -hmm. right? Like I think one of the things that happens in any kind of relationship where we think we're having trouble is like, we're like, I want that person to want to be my friend so I can feel good about myself. I'm not actually interested in like shared vulnerability as you're talking about, or like seeing them as a person or like being there for them. Yeah. I just want them to like prove that I'm good enough.
1: Yeah. And the book, I call it dependency and not friendship, right? You are expecting this person to, you know, show up to hear your crises to kind of meet your needs at all times, but you're not really thinking about meeting their needs. You don't really think about calling them in times of joy, only in times of crisis, right? And it's obviously vulnerability is a part of friendship, but it's a chapter and it's not the book. And so when we're just cultivating these relationships where I'm just reaching out to you because I need support and it's a time of crisis, right? Like that's not the full body of friendship that creates Mm -hmm. more of a dependence type relationship than the reciprocity of two adults that we know as part of adult friendship.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of your kind of work here is also about de Is It's not the right word. <laughs> it's like I'm doing De-calizing. the hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> I keep trying to use that word. I've done like three podcasts where I try to say de and Every time I'm like, that's not a word. Taking away the hierarchy, evening yeah. out the hierarchy between romantic and platonic love. So listeners of this podcast know that I'm actually a huge fan of historical social context as like helping our brains see that things are optional and not just the way they are. So I'd love, I know you are an expert on this. If you could talk a little bit about like, as you talked in your TED talk, this sort of what's the history of the romantic versus platonic love kind of like value system and how yeah. it's changed change to now.
1: Yeah. So Angela Chen has this book, Ace, that is awesome in that it really differentiates between Sexual and romantic love, which we think coincide with each other, but asexual communities really show us they do not, right? right. Romantic love, the sense of passion, yearning for you, thrill around you, idealizing someone. Yeah, there's these fiery feelings. We see that even for people that we don't want to have sex with, right? And, and for a lot of female friendships in particular, right. ask a woman to talk
0: about her best friend. You're right. Or like, something oh, romantic. Oh, oh, her best friend is a very common, I think. Even for straight women, experience, even if they're not sexually attracted to other straight women.
1: Exactly. Like, she's my soulmate. I think she's the greatest person yeah, in the I world. Have what i have
0: one platonic soulmate. I tell my partner that he's my like romantic. I mean, I do use romantic with him, sexual versus platonic, but same thing. I'm like, you two are, it's a, you know, same level of kind of investment exactly. in a way.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, Throughout history, we've actually found that romance was more a part of friendship than marriage. People did not get married for love. They got married for resources, for strategic decisions to combine people's last names, you know, in the mid sort of 1800s and before. And people would turn to their friends for this romance because the assumption at the time was the genders are so distinct that you can only really access this profound intimacy with someone who shares your gender and shares your experiences. Mm-hmm. So friends were holding hands, sharing beds, writing love letters, carving their names into trees. Friends would take each other on their honeymoons. And um really?
0: but yeah. Each person take a friend? Like I'm just, is it like a
1: four person honeymoon? A whole like- community. You could take your whole community. Yeah, it was so different. And we had, uh, there was just a lot more equality, I think back then. And I think as we begin to idealize romantic well, I I don't even want to say romantic, spousal, I guess, traditional spousal love and affection, platonic love has fallen to the wayside. Part of that intentionally, I think, You know, as women got more rights, there was less of a drive for women to need to get married to access rights. So what are we going to do to make sure these women are still getting married, right? We're going to make sure that they know that this is the only place they can find worth and deep, deep connection. And they cannot find it anywhere else. They cannot find it in their friendships. And so I think that narrative really played the role of trying to get people to stay in marriages when they didn't have as much of a, a legal reasons to do it.
0: Yeah, I think that's so interesting to think about like the different strands of there's like companionate relationship, romantic feeling, sexual feeling, economic necessity and then just thinking about the ways that those kind of like all different magnets like match up in different ways over time. So like now we've taken the romantic magnet and been like nope, you're no longer attached to like friend relationships, you are now attached to the sexual one. That's where you're supposed to find that. But as yeah. you say, there's such a true diversity of lived experience that doesn't match those categories, right? Exactly. Which I think is so interesting and I think so helpful for when you are kind of fetishizing one form or the other. I mean, I certainly, I also know people who have like an easy time in their romantic relationships and then they're like, but I can't make a friend. And I'm like, well, are you friends with your partner? I mean, probably mm-hmm. you can make a friend. It's the same thing. Like it's mm-hmm. not... We treat them as these completely different kinds of relationship. But if you know how to form any kind of intimate relationship, then those skills are transferable one way or the Ah, other.
1: Thank you. Yes, Cara. I feel like when I tell people about what you need to do to make friends, you have to initiate, you have to try. They're like, that sounds like so much work. And I'm like, would you ever say that if I told you this is what you need to do to find your spouse, right? Like We have this script about friendship. Like it's not a relationship, like it's easy, like it's good vibes only, like there should never be any issues or problems, but intimacy is intimacy, right? Whether it is with a spouse or a friend, the same behaviors are going to drive those two relationships to be successful, like affirming people, being vulnerable, spending time together, you know, the same exact behaviors. And so I think we need to stop compartmentalizing so much what we think is appropriate in
0: friendship versus what we think is appropriate for with our spouse. So interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking, I haven't really thought this This is a new thought. So I don't know if it's going to come out making sense, but it sort of feels like maybe part of that is because we use the word friendship to mean this category of very different things. So like, you know, if you go bowling with somebody once a week, maybe you are getting into super deep experiences and your relationships and vulnerability, but also you could probably do that for 10 years with someone and never really have a conflict or have to share any deep vulnerability or intimacy And like, yeah, that is a relationship where maybe you don't expect that you need to do all this deep emotional work. But we use Mm -hmm. the category friend to mean everything from like activity partners, person from work you sometimes go to happy hour with, all the way up through deep intimate relationships. And Mm -hmm. I think there are people for whom they think that having a really deep emotionally intense friendship is like weird or like transgressive, right? Or is like outside, like people will get married and then like, you're not supposed to have deep friendships with anyone else as if that's somehow impinging right on the marriage relationship. So I feel like maybe that's part of where some of our cultural confusion comes from is like using the same word to mean basically every social relationship you have that is not with someone you're having sex with or <laughs> so someone true. You're actually related to. It's like, those are kind of clear categories. And then friend is like everything else. Yeah. You're so
1: right, Cara. We we just don't have this clarity of terms. We don't have this clarity of love and it confuses us and it depletes our connection. I wanted to speak to one point you made about, you know, the assumption that we get married and drop everyone else and, and shed them and then just focus on this one person and how much the research shows that that's harmful for your your romantic relationship, right? You know, one study found that when your partner makes a friend, they are not only less depressed, but you are less depressed too, Mm -hmm. because there's high rates of what's called concordance between you and your spouse, meaning their mental health really affects yours. So things that benefit their mental health actually benefit your mental health. Mm -hmm. Other studies that find that when you get into conflict with your spouse, your stress hormone release pattern is wacky and it's harmful. But if you have quality support outside the marriage, that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Other studies finding, particularly for women in heterosexual marriages, if they have quality connection outside the marriage, they're more resilient to strife within the marriage. Mm -hmm. Whereas these people that just rely on their spouse, what you see is that normal fluctuations in the relationship can be devastating because that's the only place they access support. They're so impacted. They don't have resilience to it. And when you're so impacted by things going wrong in your your romantic relationship, it's going to be harder for you to get back to normalcy, right? Because how are you supposed to uplift this relationship when you're feeling so devastated that friends give you this stabilizing force, this resource, so you can come into your marriage? in a stable place, in a secure place. And so that it helps your marriage and your relationship with your spouse. It helps you thrive.
0: Yeah, it's like the whole stool versus three-legged chair, right? Like one, it's a lot easier to knock over when there's just one source of support. If that crumbles, you're in trouble. I like Um, that metaphor. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think also, especially for the way that straight men are socialized around friendship, like it's so common that even if they have friends in the beginning, over time, if they get into a long-term romantic relationship, their spouse becomes their only emotional outlet. I mean, I do think this is maybe changing, but at least even when I was growing up still, like straight men were mostly socialized to not talk about their feelings and not really have emotional intimacy outside of romantic relationships. So it does not at all surprise me that having for everybody, but especially I would imagine like being somebody's only emotional support is obviously too much. Right. And having that kind of, I think the irony is like, the more you encourage your superior partner to have friends, the better your relationship is going to be. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think for some people, we take that. I mean, people who practice non-monogamy are taking that even farther into like encouraging all kinds of romantic and platonic and in between and sexual connections actually strengthens the relationship, doesn't detract from it. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about kind of like concrete things people can start since this is the sort of like mindset, what you can work on podcast. One of the things you talk about in your work, obviously, we both talk about our work, is that, you know, women are conditioned to believe that they don't have worth without a romantic partner, right? That that's like, I would say like women are taught to believe their values like the stock market. It's like up or down, <laughs> depending on what's up you know, a survey of everybody's opinions in the world, what the scale said, mm. what your partner's doing, what is just like, every, right? Up and down, up and down. So I would just love to hear from my listeners have all heard all of my thoughts on what they can do, but from your kind of perspective, what do you think is a way that listeners can start to like shift that belief and start to appreciate the love that is already kind of around them or appreciate their friendships in that way.
1: Yeah, Rick Hansen, he's a psychologist. He has work on on what's called taking in the good. So he sort of argues that our brains have this natural bias towards negativity. And if we're not intentional, that will continue to happen. So he has this practice that it's called HEAL where you have a positive experience and you pause and you savor it, and you Mm -hmm. let it stir something in you emotionally, and you picture it melting into your body. And Mm -hmm. he sort of says, what is state becomes trait that the more you practice this, the more it becomes part of who you are. So I think we can really do that. And this is also one of my tips for becoming more securely attached, Mm -hmm. take in moments of social safety. Someone Mm -hmm. smiled at you, a friend texted you back, a friend congratulated you, a friend held the door for you. It doesn't have to be big at all. You know, a friend posted a picture of you on social media, actually receive those moments, be present for them, take them in. Like, I think our problem is when we have this mindset, we don't actually register all the love from our friends, Mm -hmm. right? And you have to be intentional in order to really register it and start feeling in an embodied way, like in in the way that your body responds to these different types of relationships that your body begins to value the love you get from friends, just like the love you get from a romantic partner.
0: Yeah, I love that. And or vice versa, if you're somebody who finds friendship easy, but struggles in this other way, that that's transferable. Receiving is such a big, I think about this with my current partner, because in the mental space I was in before, I I couldn't receive as a romantic love that was like as accepting as my friendship love. And that's sort Mm -hmm. of like, I think that I haven't really like synthesized it into teaching about it yet. I love this tip of being like learning to receive in your physical body, just in a moment of like what that feels like, because if our mindset is people don't like me, I get rejected. My friends don't like me as much as I like them, whatever your thought pattern is, your brain will just skip over it because it's inconsonant with your self image, right? It's cognitive dissonance. Mm. And so your brain just, your brain is like, well, I'm going to ignore the 10 texts they did just send me back and forth <laughs> and I'm going to fixate on the fact that I sent the 11th and they didn't respond. Exactly. Right? That 10 don't count. This 11th I didn't get, that is what I'm going to be on. So yeah, that practice of like pausing and receiving physically is like a really great way to start rewiring your nervous system.
1: Yeah. And Cara, you are exactly right about, you know, if you have low self-worth, it's it's very hard to receive others positive intentions for you. It's called self-verification theory in the research that we look for people that verify our sense of self. So you see in the research that people with low self-esteem prefer to interact with someone who views them negatively rather than someone that views them positively, not because they don't want to be loved like the rest of us, but because when someone views them positively, They don't believe it. They think they're being manipulated, right? And when someone views them negatively, they're sort of like, "Okay, yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's predictable to me. That's coherent with my sense of reality. You who value me, you're creating an identity crisis. This is foreign to me. This doesn't match my sense of who we are." And there is this way that I think, you know, there's such a reciprocity between the work we do in ourselves and how our relationships show up. And the more positive our relationships are, the more positive our sense of self. But, you know, sometimes. You know, if you have a, a poorer sense of self, it's just harder to even take in healthy relationships, even when they're at your doorstep. So that's why I think it's really important to not question when other people express love for you, unless you have a reason to like, assume that it's tender and real and authentic. It is so wild.
0: Tender. I definitely thought my partner was like love bombing. I had like all of these crazy, just cause I was like, not, I didn't, you know, it was like an internet phenomenon, but like, I just, <laughs> I was so suspicious in the beginning so yep. I just was not used to it. And it was like, there must be something wrong. Either like he's deranged or there's something weird happening, or like, you know, and yeah. now, like, you know, two years in or whatever, I'm like, oh, I think he actually just liked me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a normal thing that can happen. But I love that term. I was I had muted myself just so I could type it so I didn't forget it. The self-verification theory, because it's just like such a nice term for something that I talk and teach about a lot. But I think this is exactly what you're saying, is why I'm always telling all of you listening that. It doesn't work. If you aren't changing your thought process about yourself, you can work your ass off trying to get the validation from someone else. And the minute it comes in, your brain is like, does not compute. Nope. Let me like dismiss it. Let me find a reason it doesn't really count. Right. That's like you'll try so hard to get someone to like you. And then the minute they indicate they like you, you'll think they're just being polite. They didn't really like me. They didn't like it. Will not land if you haven't basically done at least a little work to soften the landing space for to like be able to plant itself. Absolutely. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think I should have or that you want to share from your work?
1: Well, since we struggle with making predictions of our social world, I wanted to share some research with your audience that shows that people like us more than we think they do. And the world is actually safer than we think because of our negativity bias. That. Yep. So, cool. so research on something called the liking gap. When strangers interact and predict how like they are by the other person, they underestimate how like they are. Mm -hmm. And the more critical they are of themselves, the more pronounced this underestimation is. So we think our mean
0: thoughts are the truth when in fact they really distort the truth. Pause on that. That's so important because I coach women all the time who are like, I'm not being self-critical. I just know that I'm lazy and stupid and bad at my job. It's just really (laughs) important to be self-critical. (laughs) <laughs> like it won't say it quite that baldly, but like kind of <laughs> close. And I'm kind of thinking like, that's not self-awareness. But I think this is so important. So many women who come through coaching with me or come through the clutch are like, I had no idea that I was so negative towards myself. Like I just thought mm-hmm. I was objectively discussing with myself, my self-awareness of my real terribleness. <laughs> 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 like this is so important that like you constantly your brain is like underestimating how much other people like you. And the more self-critical you are, the more that you are just like looking for evidence of that.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and we find that this is true across the board that when you predict how happy someone would be to receive a text from you to reconnect with them, you underestimate that. When you predict whether people will value the affection that you share, you predict that it comes off as more awkward than it does and underestimate just how much they'll enjoy it when you predict how your vulnerability will land with people, you view it as coming off more negatively than it actually will and underestimate how positively people perceive you as authentic and genuine. So in general, people are loving you more than you think.
0: I love that. And if you can update your brain to match that, then you actually get to enjoy it.
1: Right? Exactly. Like, and then I you keep, it's
0: a self-filling product. It keeps right, keep it's benefiting. It better and better and better. Yeah. Cause you example. show up better. Yeah. I've used this before and this is not exactly about liking, but it's just such a good example that I had did a lot of body image work when I first found coaching. Before I did body image work, anytime anyone looked at me in public, I assumed they were thinking that I like was too fat or I was gross or I shouldn't be wearing that, whatever. Right? I just assumed it was all negative thoughts. And then having post on the work, I now just assume it's always positive, like not even on purpose. I'm just like, I look like hot today, <laughs> and like probably in reality it was a mix both times, but it doesn't matter. My experience now is so much better, right? i was exactly definitely underestimating it before. And I think it like all ties back to that. One of the reasons that I talk so much about developing a relationship with yourself where you're not rejecting yourself is that so much of this is just like, when you think about what is the worst thing that's going to happen if I put myself out there and someone doesn't like me, or if I was right, the worst thing that's going to happen is you will feel rejection. Right. And so Mm -hmm. like, that is the thing that we are, we are like, I'm going to hunker down a little ball and never speak to anyone again so that I don't have to have this feeling. But if you can get comfortable having that feeling because you are not going to then internalize it and make it mean something about you, right? It's like you can go out there and get 20 amazing friends and also feel rejected twice. Mm -hmm. Or you can stay home and feel rejected zero times, but also have zero friends.
1: Exactly. And I think we also need to reframe rejection. If you really want to curate the beautiful social community that you really want, rejection is part of that trajectory.
0: Totally. Totally. And you're going to reject people also. We never think about when we're rejecting, it, right? Yes. I happens in dating all the time. People come in and be like, well, I'm always getting rejected. And then they make their dating history. And I'm like, you broke up with like 15 people. <laughs> it's like they don't count. Only the people who rejected me count, right? So true. So true. So good. All right, everybody go buy Platonic. It's already a bestseller, but make it a Ooh. what is there, a double? Is there like a platinum no, bestseller? Washington. Yeah, that's the other one, Wall Street Journal. Put <laughs> it on the Washington Post <laughs> bestseller. Everybody can buy the
1: book.
0: <laughs> Where can people find you other than finding the book if they want to learn more?
1: Yeah, so I share research back tips on friendship on my Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. That's D R M A R I S A G F R A N C O. And on my website, drmercygfranco.com, you can take a quiz that assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend or hire me to speak on connection
0: and belonging. Awesome. We will put all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. This was so fun.
0: If you're loving what you're learning in the podcast, you have got to come check out The Clutch. The Clutch is the podcast community for all things on Fuck Your Brain. It's where you can get individual help applying the concepts to your own life. It's where you can learn new coaching tools not shared on the podcast that will blow your mind even more. And it's where you can hang out and connect over all things thought work with other podcast chickens just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change your life. I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. That's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. I can't wait to see you there.